Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series for leaders who empower others to create supportive and inclusive workplaces where people can do their absolute best. Each week I will interview a leader who epitomizes the ability to empower others to lead and create amazing workplaces, environments and communities because of that skill. In these interviews I try as much as possible to let our guests do all the talking as they are the stars and not me. I trust you enjoy the lessons and wisdoms each guest shares, and if you're like me, listen to the interviews a number of times to capture some of the true gems of leadership we hear each week. Do you want to listen to a story about a leader at an international level who was at the peak of their game and then resigned from his high performing job against the wishes of everyone around him, and at the same time filed for divorce from his wife of 13 years? sending his wife and his five-year-old son from their Asian home back to Sweden on their own while he stayed behind. This is a story about that leader who learns to let the ego go and then live a life in service of other people. This is the story of Nick Johnson, Managing Director of EGN, an executive support network where CEO executives actually support each other through the things that keep them up at night. Nick is also the author of the best-selling book, Executive Loneliness. Throughout this interview, there are a multitude of leadership gems, but I've listed three for this intro just to bait your interest. The first one is if you have something on your mind that is troubling you, write it down and make a list of who you can go to to ask for help. Number two, and this is at a leadership level, be vulnerable. And number three, again at a leadership level, talk about your feelings first. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. It truly does go in directions that I never thought was possible due to the honesty and vulnerability of Nick Johnson. Thank you, Nick, for a great interview, and I hope you, the audience, enjoy it as much as I did. So our next guest is Nick Johnson. He's the co-founder and managing director of a, a group called EGN, an executive peer support network in Singapore and Asia. Um, and he's also the author of a wonderful book, which he was kind enough to send me, um, called Executive Loneliness, Five Pathways of Overcoming Isolation, Stress, Anxiety, Depression, um, in the business world, in the modern business world. So welcome to the show, Nick, Nick Johnson. Thank you so much, Alan. It's great to be here. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, and your book is, I really enjoyed it. It's really, I, I, just to give you a bit of a backdrop too, you've, you've seen my, our, you know, the show is not, um, it's not that old. It's probably you're the, I think, probably about the 20th, 21st guests um, that I've interviewed. Um, but in the ones that I've interviewed so far, and I told them that I was interviewing you and about what your topic was, they went, oh, my God, I can so relate to being lonely as a CEO. There's no, you know, they, they can't talk to anyone. Uh, so really, you're, I, I can't say I've ever seen a book with that title and, and addressing the myth of, you know, CEOs need support as well. So um, well, well done to you. So if we get straight into it, um, Every guest on the show, uh, I, I ask two questions, 
just to um, probably, it's like a bit of an icebreaker uh, and a bit of a, it lets the guests of the show know um, who you are, really. So the first question I'll ask you is, um, what was your first ever true experience in leadership? And it might have been as a six-year-old or it might have been yesterday and why? Well, I think something that really stands out for me was uh, in uh, when I hit rock bottom in 2018, and it was really then the self-leadership starting with that, where I had to really pull myself out, you know, having hit that gift of desperation and the willingness just to go forward day by day. That is the strongest, I think, because before we can even think about leading others, we have to lead ourselves. So I think until that point in my my life, all the leadership that I had tried to do, I would say, was not the, the right kind of leadership. It was perhaps driven by ego, thinking what was in it for me, rather than being of service to other people. And I think it's only when I hit really the rock bottom that I changed, managed to change that perspective. Wow, that's a that's a beautiful answer, Nick. Um, and it's funny once you go down this rabbit warren about what we're talking about today the key seems to be um getting rid of the ego about yourself and um and i love what you just said then being of service to other people uh so we, we, we will go down that path um all right um so the second question i ask um and you you've got so many facets of your life that's covered in your book and on your website um what is something about Nick Johnson that no, absolutely no one knows? Well, I I grew up being born on May 1. And in Sweden, that is uh, like a, a social day. It's full of demonstration. It's parades. Oh. And it it's also happens to be fireworks uh, on that day because it's also like it is springtime. And as a young child growing up, I, I didn't realize that it was all about, uh, you know, uh, for the, the the government and party and demonstrations and so on, I thought everyone was out celebrating my birthday. So <laughs> I lived in that delusion, you know, that I got a very special birthday. And so it was almost like Christmas, you know, when you finally uh, uh, understand that Santa uh, might be your granddad, right? Uh, it was almost like that with my birthday as well. <laughs> well done. Well done. All right. So that's um, a pretty good uh, segue in. So this this... The Courage to Lead interview series um, seeks to explore and shine a light on leaders who who empower others to create supportive in, and inclusive workplaces, environments, or communities so that they can do their absolute best. So that's why um, I, I wanted to have you on the show. So let's go into um, you know the kind of the the culmination is I suppose uh, your EGN, the Executive Peer Support Network. Um, and your book, Executive Loneliness. But how do we get there? What's what's your story? And I'm in your hands. Um, how do you um, like your? When I read your book, you're obviously a hugely successful um, executive at an international level, um, and people didn't know that you were doing it tough. Um, perhaps yourself didn't even know that you were doing it tough. Um, so, tell can you will you tell the listeners? The story, and just for your information, the listeners come from all over the place. Um, they 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 are in Sweden, they're in um, Brussels, they're in New York, um, they're in South Korea, they're in New Zealand. Um, so, 
what's your story? How does how does how does Nick Johnson get made? Well, I was born in Sweden, educated in Australia on the Gold Coast. Actually, I studied there and played golf. And then I realized one day that it was pretty far away from Europe. So I, I looked at a map and I thought I better go halfway. So I, I moved to Bangkok, Thailand in 2004. And I have since then worked in, in mainly in Thailand, Indonesia, Vietnam, and now in Singapore the last five years. So I built a career for myself, starting in PR, marketing, advertising, and eventually in general management and being a managing director and, and a, a general director for various large international firms. At one stage, I was uh, uh, heading up the, the medical services, managing 72 hospitals and clinics in Indonesia, most of them remotely for the oil and gas industry there. Um, so I had indeed a successful uh, career. Uh, really on the sales side, business development side, but in general management, that was my strength. But I was just so focused on the goals, just so focused on, you know, getting the bonuses, impressing the bosses and climbing the ladder that I, I didn't realize, you know, that it, how lonely it was until I actually reached the top and I realized that I wasn't happy there. So once I was there sitting at, the, uh, at that position, I worked so hard for all these years and I realized that I wasn't happy there. Uh, then it, it, it suddenly started to spiral down until the point that I resigned from the job. With that, I filed for my divorce. And before I knew it, I was sitting there lonely. I missed my, lost my fitness, lost my happiness completely. And I started to seek happiness instead in, in going to the bar and drinking alcohol. So that's, that's my story, the elevator pitch version, Alan. <laughs> that's a pretty good... I love how a lot of people say that now nowadays. That this is my elevator pitch. So let's let's um, uh, let's explore some of that. Um, let's let's go into. Uh, I really like what you said. Um, you had this version of success in your own mind that um, you were so focused on your goals. You were so focused on impressing your bosses. Um, let's go there a little bit. Uh, before we even get to where, you know, where it all fell apart. Um, so when Nick Johnson is focused on the goals, what were some of those, yeah, and focusing on impressing the bosses? Let's talk about that. Well, I, I imagine you're the type of uh, leader that probably wrote down those goals, put a date on them. Um, what were some of those goals if you're prepared to share them back then? Yeah, sure. And I mean, it's what we are trained to do, right? And you look back even at the university days, if you top a class, you get a diploma and you get a recognition, you even get some financial awards like scholarships and so on. And, and you know, it can become quite addicted uh, to get that recognition. And, you know, at one stage, I even flew over my parents from Europe all the way when I was on Dean's list, you know, and I was very proud and they were proud. So I think that is something that you know, once you are there, you want to keep going. And it's the same in the workplace. And I actually even flew to see um, uh, Anthony Robbins in Las Vegas. I saw Brian Tracy, who's written, is perhaps the number one author in the US on goal setting. I've seen him twice live, you know. So you're really drilled by these motivational guru and all these books on goal setting. And having then a successful career in sales myself, I was training my teams, you know, helping them set goals. And just like you say there, Alan, it, it was about, you know, setting aggressive goals and measuring them and, and hitting them and getting a lot of confidence on that. 
uh, when you do that. And I always had goals, you know, for all parts of my life. And I, I kept hitting them and, and so on. But it was coming at the price of perhaps you're stepping on some other people because you're becoming too goal oriented, too focused on yourself. Uh, and, and that is perhaps, you know, in the short term, you're hitting it and you, you, you see the successes from your awards and, and, and what you're getting. But it also means that perhaps people will become jealous and you will actually become more and more isolated. And, and that's a, the gradual process there. So I would say uh, the goals I've wrote, and you asked me, Alan, what goals I've wrote, and it would be specifically about hitting goals, achievements, targets uh, by specific dates. Uh, I also wrote goals for my fitness life, for example, run this marathon in this time. And, you know, I would look at this and I, I would train and I would tell, uh, for example, a, a coach, I would say, I want to run this race in this time, train me for that. Uh, and that, Alan, I still have on the on the on the on the on the personal side for fitness i still have the goal setting but in the workplace i believe we need to be a bit more careful and work as a team rather than as individuals that's a real uh, and this is where i love this uh this interview series um i love how honest you were with that because uh so you you set these you you were successful at university you were on the dean's list you flew your family out from sweden which wouldn't have been cheap i wouldn't imagine um going to Anthony Robbins in Las Vegas and Ryan Tracy a couple of times. If you're at that level, there's probably thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollar tickets to go to them and the and the airfares as well. Uh, and probably the ongoing programs that they, you probably took place in after that. Um, so there's a lot of money involved. Um, and you said that you were hitting your targets, but it, but it came at the price of stepping on other people. You said, um, can we go there a little bit? Are you someone? Maybe let's 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 kind of unpack that a little bit. When you were stepping on people at that time, did you care, or did it hurt you? Did it did it inwardly hurt you, but you ignored it? I think uh, uh, there's a, two sides to this answer. One is that you know being an expatriate and working in Asia. You also go through a different channel or funnel, right? You are already hired, perhaps with a much higher salary than, let's say, the locals. Uh, you have a driver, a car as an expat. You have your housing. You have all these benefits, you know, a, a mobile phone. You have a bigger private office and all these things because perhaps the international company uh, is working. In this case, we were working with inter international clients, so you needed to have a, a a Westerner to work with the Westerners, and you're even told, you know, don't don't show and uh, don't tell everyone what what your salary is. You you also you know uh, you live in your own world. You go to eat lunch at different places from the local teams. So you're already segregated from day one. So in that sense, you know, you're you're sort of not competing against the rest. You're sort of in your own class already. So you're isolated from day one. So that is very, very tough, you know, for, for ex and, and I've been an expat, I've been in these roles. You don't understand the language. You don't understand the culture. You're supposed to leave the team, lead the team when you're already yeah, separated from the beginning. Uh, 
so it's really really difficult and and you also told not to get perhaps too close with a local team and so on uh that's at least what i was warned for and 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 i guess they were scared that you will perhaps form too close relationships or and they've seen how it's gone wrong in the past so that is the big challenge i had alan that i was looking then at my role models the other people in the company and i would go out and have lunch perhaps only with with the foreigners and the locals would go differently so in that sense it was very very tricky and did i step on the others no i didn't really perhaps see the others alan in this sense i was looking and comparing myself perhaps with other country managers we existed in 70 countries and i was competing more with them okay do you want to um i'll be honest here i've always struggled with what an expatriate mean so i if i struggle with that wording i imagine a lot of listeners would too do you want to explain because that sounds like your world um so what 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 does that word mean to to a normal person that works uh, in their own country what's an expatriate mean well and and the expatriate as we knew it is almost not uh, available anymore the days when you were really sent you know as an expatriate and your whole family shipped to a country where they, basically the company pays for everything from school to housing to cover all the utility bills and you have flights paid home once or twice a year that is not the world we live in anymore to a big extent some companies still have this if the company really need you know to open up uh, an office in a new market where the company need to have some people from let's say if you're an australian company expanding to myanmar and you want to have the same culture you need perhaps the expertise of your company to train the new team therefore you're relocating some people who then get this package right um, so I, I was fortunate to have that at some uh, uh, some parts of my career and then i become more and more localized that's normally the, the uh, what is happening because the expatriates is supposed to be there for a short period you train up the new team and then you perhaps move to another country or you go back to your own country but it really means that you you shouldn't have much expenses uh, during that time because you're stationed overseas during this period and and yeah while it's it comes with the perks it comes with the packages and so on it can for the reasons i mentioned before it can also be quite lonely mm, okay um it's interesting uh it really it's an inter interesting story you can see it's kind of your role models and and your um uh the expectations when you're put in that position is not to segregate not to not to mingle not to integrate with your local team uh it's uh it's really it's really interesting so um i'm still curious about when you say you said in that answer stepping on other people what did you mean by that well i think just caring about yourself your own targets your own bonuses not really thinking too much about the team because you're not uh, rewarded for it you don't have in your kpis how the teams are feeling or you know behaving it's more about hitting certain numbers right in, in your own contract you need to do this and that and and that's the focus then if that's what you are rewarded for then those are the kpis then uh, uh, then the team is only there for a short term as well because most likely you have a contract for a year or two years so you're not really building something perhaps for a long future either okay all right, so it's so interesting where you end up. So, and I don't want to jump there straight away. So, 
because um, you you've had this you know your book and everything and your and and your EGN network kind of talks about this, but did did the fact that your KPIs um, and you're only caring about yourself. When did you think that that hurt you? I did think it, it started. It started to hurt me once I have reached the top. I think you know I, I worked the way from like key account manager, area sales manager, uh, you know, sales director, and then general manager. But once I was really in that top position, that's when when it started to really feel lonely because then you didn't have anyone really at your level to talk to about the challenges. I also didn't have the toolbox. I didn't get a coach. I didn't get a mentor outside my organization at that time. Uh, so I didn't really have anyone to talk to about these challenges. I had friends. I had friends I played golf with or who I watched sport with or we did things together, but we were not vulnerable. Typical men, I guess, yeah, in that yeah, yeah, aspect, yeah, right? Yeah. So we had good times, but that didn't solve my problems. It was having a good time, having a few drinks was to relax. But when I came back to the office the next day, the same issues were there. I was still sitting in my office with the door locked and uh, I didn't really know anymore who to talk to. And I can especially remember that the last role I had in a, in, in a multinational then, the role was a bit too technical for me. I, it was a bit too much operational. It was too much uh, spreadsheets and I'm not very good at that. And, you know, instead of, you know, asking for help, such as getting a course or training or getting someone who could support me, I was suffering. And I remember, you know, for one year feeling bad about this when I realized I really had to, you know, do reports and things in Excel. I was really grinding through it and finding it extremely stressful. I was worried making mistakes and so on. I, uh, you know, if I could turn back time, I, I would have raised my hand and said, hey, I'm not so familiar with this. I'm not too good at this. Is it someone who, who can work with me here and support me? But I didn't say that. No, that's, um, and I think what, what's, what's so, you're being so honest, Nick, and I, I appreciate that. And I can actually see um, uh, that it actually hurts to go there a little bit. You know, your face is um, remembering what it felt like then. So thank you for being so honest about it. But um, why is it, like, as you recount it now, it seems so obvious, but why is it that you, Nick Johnson back then, in, in your last big um, uh, executive level job before kind of, before the course changed, why is it that you couldn't have um, asked for help what what stopped you? I didn't know who to ask for help because I felt if I went to my boss, uh, who was the managing director of the organization, I felt, you know, she had hired me to do the job and she trusted me. And I didn't want to, you know, complain or come across as weak. And I, I also didn't want to expose myself and be vulnerable with my team to show them that I didn't have the answer, which is in hindsight was very naive and stupid of me. I, yeah. I, 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 I should have, uh, I mean, how can, uh, how am I expected to know everything? If yeah. I'm not good at Excel, but I'm good at selling and the client relationships, that should have been okay. I should have shared, just been honest. 
but I was just scared, you know. Maybe I was I felt threatened that maybe you know I, I first you're on probation always, right? You and this company had six months probation, so I remember feeling like I walked on eggshells, you know, at that time yeah. walking in a big office. Uh, uh, sitting in the biggest office of, uh, in our part of the building, like 140 staff, and you walk into the, your own private office and everyone is looking at you. You don't know the language, you don't know the culture, and you are the outsider, and you clearly stand out, right? So uh, in that sense, you're starting being anxious during that six months probation. I thought I would be relaxed after when they said you're doing great, uh, but I, I kept that with me. I, was, I, I just never felt safe. And I think... Um... Because we've done the elevator pitch of your career, your book kind of touches on this. Like we're, at the moment, we're talking about your last executive position before it fell apart and you changed direction. But your book talks about this. You were actually um, probably sacked, the, the, the harsh word, or, or let go in a couple of other positions when you thought you were going well. Do you want to probably, um, and I think that maybe helps explain maybe your fear uh, of yeah. being vulnerable and fear of asking for help. Um, so do you want to just uh, expand your elevator pitch and say, well, this this beautiful job that you're in at the end um, was preceded by a couple of uh, blips, I suppose you could say, uh, obstacles that really challenged you to the core? Absolutely, Alan. I had been let go of a couple of jobs before, and one in particular was extremely painful and very unexpected at the time. If I'm looking back at it, though, I, if I was uh, my old boss, I would also have fired myself if I'm looking back at it now. But I didn't see it like that when it happened. It took me many, many years uh, to actually see it from the other side as well. Uh, but uh, I, 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 I was let go. And it, it was a huge blow to my ego and filled me with a lot of anxiety, a lot of anger. And it was very difficult at that time for me to pull myself back. And at the first time then I was let go from a big international job, I didn't want to tell anyone about it. I didn't want to tell my family or friends. And I did everything I could to cover it up. I immediately tried to jump to some other role so I could tell the story that it was, you know, uh, that I was in control, that it was my decision and that I would move on to something better. Uh, but that led to jumping from job to job before I landed something more stable. But that uh, then this repeated itself one time when I moved to another country and I was doing quite well in the job, but it was suddenly sold and I was let go again. So this means, you know, I'm here two times in an international role being let go. Uh, and that gave me so much anxiety. So after that, in any paid job, I was just looking in my inbox, you know, for that email, waiting for perhaps the phone call from my boss, you know, to call myself over and, and say, hey, by the way, we, 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 we have some changes here and, and we need to let you go, you know, so. That uh, was something I never re really uh, regrouped myself or, or could overcome. Let's um, go there a little bit then, because I, I think uh, you've obviously solved this down the track, but um, your old self say, I, I, I liked how honest you were, I've been let go a couple of times and I didn't see it coming, but if I'd been my old boss, I would have sacked me as well. Uh, I, lo I love that line. <laughs> um, what, look at, and this is, 
this is like we're all human beings. So it takes us, when we get hurt, it takes us a while to not be hurt anymore and really kind of reflect on why did that happen um, at, at a self-reflection level. You've obviously done that. Why would you have told your old boss to sack you? What were you doing? Well, I think, uh, you know, and in that particular job, uh, my old boss was my third boss in a year and uh, the first two had promoted me and you know we'd really get along well and then came the third guy in and he was very very different and different from me and at that time i was very close to being put in charge of the company so i was on my way up uh, and i was even hired as a future managing director so that was the plan for me that was my career path so once two had gone, I was in my dreams and I was hoping that they would put me looking back at that as well. Uh, it was probably very naive or even delusional of me to think so. I didn't have the experience yet. I had certainly the willingness and the attitude yeah. for it, but I was lacking the experience. So when they put someone else in then and he was not in my eyes, super experienced either. Uh, I felt that they should have put me instead. So I was resentful f- from day one and I did everything, you know, to make his life difficult. And yeah. because I had been in the country and this was in Vietnam, I had been in the country and I had a team on my side, a team. And this, I was a pretty good team player at this time in this job. It was a sales role. I was not yet the managing director. I was a sales director. So I relied to work very closely with the sales team. And I had the hearts of them. They liked me and we worked well together. And they were also cheering for me and hoping that I would be the boss because that would be good for them, right? They better the devil you know rather than someone else coming in new. Uh, so it was this kind of atmosphere in the whole company that everyone, you know, was cheering for me, liking me. And he came in and he must have felt very threatened and, yes. and isolated, I can imagine. So... Uh, and he was uh, also uh, different for me. He, I remember the first line he said, whatever gets measured, get done. He was uh, heavy into numbers, data, tracking and so on. And I am more, I was more the so-called rock and roll sales guy. So you can already see here, perhaps there was, we didn't really get along. And, and, uh, uh, and I put on, you know, great event, sales event. And it was all about uh, pushing the sales and so on, but perhaps not doing the reporting and the things that he was expecting from me. So in that sense, I, I, I sort of undermined him. And I can understand that, you know, when he had a chance, it, he thought that the, it was not a good idea to keep me in the company. He wanted to bring in some of his own people. Yeah, no, I, I and uh, I someone I interviewed on the show, one of the earlier interviews, and I won't name who it was, but they, they talked about that exact same experience. Um, I kind of um, in my in my book uh, in my book's due to be published, you know, the Courage to Lead um, uh, memoir about my policing career. I, I, do, I make a description. Um, there's relentless leaders that um, are always trying to empower everyone and trying, to, you know, look at the long game and and create a an environment. Exactly why I'm interviewing you today, where people can do their absolute best. And then there's the ruthless leaders where they'll push anyone out of the way <laughs> to, to get the prize. And even when they get the prize, they'll still push someone else out of the way that might be a threat to them. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so you just described that beautifully. Um, so when you're, I find this quite interesting, um, when you're hurting so bad back then, you didn't have a mentor, you didn't have a coach, did you ever reach out for um, psychiatric 
you know, psycholo psychological help then to, to help you through it. I remember in Vietnam and in Indonesia, those were the two countries I was in, I remember trying to look that up and it was not easy to even find someone in English spoken. And also because I worked in the medical industry, uh, yes, you know, I, was, yes. I was surrounded by doctors, including that because I was uh, the general manager of medical services, so I was surrounded, my whole office was 15 doctors, including very senior doctors, uh, right by my side. Uh, so in that sense, we were quite vulnerable and about health. There was a lot of blood tests and, and checking and so on. But the mental side, you know, is, is, is full of stigma, right? That's not really something you're talking about, even though you're surrounded by doctors. So while I was thinking about it, it was not something that I pushed through, though. I can just remember Google, uh, searching for it in Google sometimes, but not uh, making anything out of it. Yeah, being, again, I think I can relate to your story. Uh, and, and some other leaders that I've interviewed on the show, uh, your story is so familiar and your honesty about I didn't want to be I didn't want to be vulnerable I didn't want to share it was naive it was naive and stupid of me not to looking back on it um, uh, so I think we might just go we might just jump to you kind of touched on it in your elevator pitch so you're in this last job you have a you have a boss who sounds like you really like, and she really like you. Um, you pass, you're out of your six month probation, but you've got this demon on your shoulder. You've been sacked on your other two two jobs, um, and you're just waiting for the next email where you're going to be sacked again. You kind of tell us in detail where your head was at at that time, and ultimately, and this is what I can't believe in your book what you did um, with your boss uh, and probably try and, I mean, I don't want to steal from your, from your book, but I think the listeners need to know, well, how does this guy that's in this great job, what happened? You know, and, and it kind of, it happened in your, by your own hand. So please take us there. Yeah, and, and Alan, I was just actually going over my old documents, cleaning up my bookshelf the other day, and I found uh, from 2014 is when I held this job, and I found my yearly report with my bonus payment, and I, I read what how kind my boss at the time had been and her evaluation for me, my, also my direct report in, in, in head office in Singapore, who had also written his report, you know, and if I read that now, I should understand I was very safe in the job, you know, the, I, the, they, I had really delivered on everything that they uh, wanted me to do and they saw me as a very important part of the organization. But in my world at the time, I must not have understood that. I was playing perhaps uh, the story of being laid off or, uh, before that the scars were not healed because I had not taken responsibility of my own side of the street when when that happened instead i was fearful and resentful still against uh, you know the old companies the for the layoffs that i felt it was they were mistreating me but if i would have you know healed and gone through that properly i would not have had that fear in this job and i would probably have seen the good remarks that was coming to me uh, in the report and when i felt insecure i should of course have gone to my boss and ask for some private moment to discuss about it. Uh, perhaps not bothering her in the, her busy office day, but ask if I could have had a coffee uh, with her or a dinner one evening. And, and, and if I would have laid this out, 
then surely she would have listened and she would have supported me and so would have probably my my reporting head office as well uh, and I had a bi-weekly call with him and he asked how are things and I always say things are good you know <laughs> yeah. but at my side I was instead uh, preparing for a long time my resignation letter I was preparing plan B and C looking for other jobs other opportunities having job interviews thinking about something else so, uh, so I thought better I'd be ready if I am let go uh, and as I went down that path, it went so far that I just was certain that, you know, uh, whenever an incident happened, a small incident, something that I felt was not going per plan or, and, and, and that happens often in the workplace. Mm. So then I, I, I was certain that, you know, this was terrible. I must be, be terminated now. But again, it was all in my mind. So eventually when I, sent my resignation letter they were all shocked and they said what is going on here you're doing so well uh you know so they even offered me other roles can we move you to us what about the role in dubai uh we, we need people there you know and 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 you've done so well is it the traffic in jakarta that you you don't like you know but again just like when i read the report about my evaluation i was not listening i didn't want to hear anything in, i had gone too far i made up my mind and there was no way back. There was nothing they could say uh, uh, that would change my mind. Wow, it's a good, it's a, it's an incredible story. Because um, normally most of us can relate to when you let go because you're focused on other things and you stretch yourself too far, and and the story is not good. But your story is exactly the opposite. Your story is we don't want you to leave. You're doing a great job. But in your own head, you're not, and you you had to. So it kind of shows um, the importance. It's you've got to be, you've got to have connections, you've got to have uh, support for yourself. So you are obviously probably describe this to us. You're doing this. This is what your book ultimately is all about. You are doing this on your own. Um, you you made all these decisions in your own head, and your own head was distorting um what happened every day as the as the next as the next time you would be sacked when it never ever happened it's quite absolutely so how how do you how do you kind of um like you've obviously done a, self, a lot of self-reflection how do you reflect on that now do you look yeah, at so that yeah 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 there you go. Yeah, so, so I mean, thinking back at that incident, you know, I, I've i learned now to pause, I learned to reflect, I learned to share, I learned to discuss. I, Whenever I face a problem, I'm thinking, who can I talk to about this? Maybe it's not only one person, you need to hear different perspectives, right? Um, and I think if I go back further you know i can remember even growing up or as a as a teenager you know i if i would have an idea about something i uh, uh, i naturally would go to my father and ask and i can remember that most of the time you know he wanted to play things safe so he wouldn't approve the idea or like the idea you can be sure that when i said i'm going to move across the world to australia that yeah. that was not something that went down very well and it might not do that for any parents right so i guess you know Growing up with a father figure who always said no to your ideas, and I, I had to break free. So it's almost like uh, uh, even before I moved to Australia, 
I moved out and lived in my own apartment from a very young age. I think I was about 17 at the time. Of course, that was not approved. So I didn't even ask my parents. It was just when they were at work one day, I had made arrangement by myself to move out, to move to my own apartment, uh, just because I didn't want to listen to their feedback. So it must be something that I've taken with me for many years. So even instead of you know talking to my boss about it, I just made uh, decisions on my own. And maybe that's why I become a leader, because I was not afraid of making big decisions by myself. But uh, as I know now, there is an easier way. And there are all big decisions that actually is very good to talk to someone before we make them. Beautiful. Uh, you've, you've, I don't need to expand on that at all. Um, so I think you said um, in your elevator pitch, not only did you write your resignation letter when things were going well, I think you said you filed for divorce as well. I did that. Did your wife know that was coming? Or do, do you want to, that's, this is pretty personal. Do you want to, um, why, like they're double whammies. I, I, I resigned from my high powered job. And at the same time, I filed for divorce. I think at this time, Alan, I was overconfident, dilutional, I uh, had received, you know, the big bonus from my company with that report, which I read now, that was wonderful. Uh, so perhaps I'm at the peak of my career, I reached what I wanted. I was also at the peak of my fitness level, competing in uh, Ironman events, running marathons, very fit. And, you know, I was sort of looking, taking an inventory check of things in my life. And I, I then saw that my, my wife was at the time, not social enough. She was not by my side. She had her own problems with her job, her career. And I felt that we were fading away from each other. We had been married 13 years by then. And just the same approach as with my job. So rather than having a conversation with her about it or getting a, a you know, a, a relationships a counselor to help us, I just told her basically to leave. And it was same approach, not ready to have any conversation. And no matter what anyone said, friends, neighbors or her or parents said, then could change my mind. It was just a, a one way street. Well, so I think this is, um, it's really honest of you. Uh, and I don't think probably uh, if I ask you, you're probably not proud of Nick Johnson back then in 2014. Well, you know, there's a few ways to look at that. I mean, and could I have dealt with this in a different way? Absolutely, yes. I could have, you know, engaged in conversations both with my work partners and my living partner at home and, and everything else around it, rather than making plans on my own for a long time behind the scene and suddenly just boom and launch it right on everyone. It's not very fair for other people. Uh, it led to that my ex-wife then had to move back to her parents back home in Sweden with our son who was five years old. So it was not fair to either of them. Um, so that I could have certainly done better. I now living on, you know, making amends for that and making it as right I can for what happened then. Uh, so I think that's the key. Uh, if I should look from the bigger picture, was it, you know, both breaking out from the workplace and the relationship, I, I think today that it was the right thing to do. I think I'm better as an entrepreneur working in smaller organizations rather than a big company. And as for my relationship, I'm today remarried with a, a wife, which is much more closer to me and more supporting and understanding of 
who I am. So it ended up right, but it was a very painful journey and it could have been done so much easier. Yeah, okay. So do you want, this is a great probably, let's launch into, like I think we're talking about Nick Johnson Mark 1 and then Nick Johnson Mark 2 happens. And there's a bit of, there's obviously a lot of pain, um, like between 1 and 2, there's a bit of, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of, um, probably substance abuse, alcohol abuse at the very least. Um, there's a lot of, uh, do you want to take us through what happened between Mark 1 and Mark 2? Yeah, Nick Johnson. Yeah, so after I had resigned from my job and also then filed for my divorce uh, and, um, you know, and I enjoyed the, the bonuses I had and so on and I had saved up some money, I thought it was time to enjoy life. I've been very disciplined and working in the medical industry, you know, you had even signed a contract. You were not even allowed to have a beer at lunchtime. You know, it was very strict and so on. And then being between jobs and, you know, looking at opportunities, I thought the whole world was an opportunity for me. And, you know, there was offers and opportunities right, left and center. I was looking at everything also. Uh, but I decided also, let's not be too hard on yourself. You, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, maybe, maybe I take a break from all this exercise and, and so on. And instead, I start to enjoy myself, which meant in my case, you know, often going to the bar, having beers with my friends and so on. But it wasn't too long until my habits of going for exercise was changed to habits of going to the bar and just enjoying myself. And with that, I started to gain a lot of weight. I, I lost my fitness completely uh, and lost my health. And I didn't realize how much that changed things, but it's also changed my outlook. Uh, suddenly, you know, I became very anxious uh, and nervous and suddenly I became very lonely in this space because suddenly I, I didn't have my my uh, my wife, my son around me, I didn't have my colleagues, my job, I didn't have anything and just like many other senior executives perhaps I had defined myself in the job you know and I didn't know who I was here and the new opportunities I had one fell off and another fell off. I invested some money that, and it didn't work out. So soon I was almost broke as well. And then I had to take a, a temporary job working in the recruitment industry just to get by and pay my bills. So I was almost bankrupt here. And mm -hmm. then I started really fall into a, a, a big depression. And it was about two, three years here from 2015, 18, when I was grinding myself downwards, really jump, jumping from job to job and abusing alcohol especially and also taking Valium and these kind of medication the day after just to to get by. Do you want to describe um, probably maybe the worst day? You don't have to. Uh, yeah, I certainly where, can. Where, yeah, uh, the worst day where you realise I can't keep doing this? Yeah, so it was in, well, I knew let's put it that way, for quite a long time that this has to stop at one time, but you're always putting that off, right? So, well, I, I stop another day or I, I sort this out another day. and But eventually I, I just couldn't go on anymore. It was just too much pain. Uh, so, uh, and luckily at this time I met the lady who became my new wife and um, I decided to tell her how I felt. And naturally 
as a human being. She listened with empathy and she was very surprised that she had been with me for some time here. Uh, but I had managed to cover that up. She only saw the positive side of me. We had good fun together. She thought that everything was good. But when I told her how I felt, she, she immediately uh, took me to a doctor before I had even a chance to say no. She brought me to a friend, who, a common friend who we knew had had alcohol addiction problems a few years earlier. Uh, she also um, really uh, encouraged me to seek help, which I did. And as I did that, you know, I, 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 I started to open doors, starting to get some hope, but I was not really ready. I even went to one of those 12 steps uh, recovery meetings of an anonymous group. I went there, but I, I listened, but it was not really for me. So I, I guess I was not really ready. I had not hit rock bottom yet, but there was something inside me at least to realize, that, yeah, okay, there, there might be a way I can get support one day. But then I left there and, and life went on for a while, but then eventually I I had been drinking too much. We were traveling um, and I had been drinking too much. And I remember I, I was really feeling bad uh, a day after I'd been drinking too much the day before and my nerve system was almost breaking uh, breaking down. I remember my heart almost jumping out of me and I was terrified. I really thought I was going to die. I, I looked at my left foot at this time and it had swollen up like an elephant foot um, and I didn't know what it was. And, and it, I was full of anxiety seeing my body breaking down and thinking that I was going to die. And again, similar like my self-talk when I played uh, uh, that radio recorder basically uh, to myself that I was going to be let go of, of my job. Now it started to tell me that you're going to die, you know, and I panicked and that's when I then really start to sign up for life insurance, writing my will, my testament, getting all the documents of my bank accounts and details and sending that to my ex-wife, sending it to my parents and so to my son, who was only a few years old then, but sending it to him anyway, just, you know, cleaning up my act because I thought I, I seriously didn't know how I could go on from here. So that that is when I hit rock bottom, yeah. So what came next? I mean, that's I think we can all feel the despair of that, and it's similar. It's um, even though you've got some help happening in there, you're still reverting to the old Nick, aren't you? You're doing it all in your own head. Um, yes. Like your, your wills, your your life insurance. Like you think you're going to die, and I've seen the picture of your elephant foot. It was huge because you're only. You're not a big guy. I mean, you look big. Uh, you've got this big presence about you. But for your, I've seen the picture of your foot. It, it must have been so frightening to see your foot look like that um, at a relatively young age. So, so what happens next? How do you, um, how do you get out of there where you're writing your own will? You know, wh when do we make the jump where we open the door to Nick Mark II and what and what you do with Nick Mark II? Yeah, so at that stage, uh, I, my wife and I went to the doctor and hospital and we saw a psychologist, which uh, she more than I told a 100% truth. Uh, and uh, they gave me support, you know, I needed a detox and medication for that. Um, and that was May 5, 2018. Uh, after I had got done this detox a few days, I came back to the support group meeting those in uh, the 12-step program 
and uh, I have kept coming back uh, uh, in the beginning almost every day, uh, these days at least uh, a few times a week. And um, it's, I, I have touched wood, I hadn't had a, have a drink now for almost five years since I started that journey. So I needed that gift of desperation. I had to hurt that much in order to be ready to completely rebuild uh, myself and everything around me. So I, and again, I really appreciate you sharing your story and the despair across anyone who's got an internet connection, really, um, people you don't know. Do you want us, um, like I know people in uh, that 12-step program, um, uh, you said initially you went almost every day, but even now you still go a few times a week. Um, what does what do you get out of that 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 you continue it like it is a must must do and you must want to do it as well but it, um but it's a must do for your well-being what what do you get out of that well if we look at it from and in this instance the the alcohol issue and it's really only the first step which is about the alcohol all the other steps is about the thinking. So you say they, uh, you know, so it's almost like you're coming there for the drinking, you stay for the thinking. And uh, the last step is the 12th step is that you have to give it back to keep it. So uh, in that sense, you know, there was people there when I came in who I would thank for saving my life, you know, for showing me the way people who had been there before themselves, three, five, 10, 20 years earlier, who then mentored me, supported me through my journey. And the only the way the program will survive and continue is if, if someone uh, is there to help. So now I'm there to help others. I'm there to help the newcomers who uh, are st struggling and suffering in, in a similar way I was five years ago. And uh, that's a, the reminder I need to have so I can be grateful for my journey for what I've gone through, but it's also what they need because most uh, of the people who come into these programs, uh, a doctor can only do so much. You can do the detox, but you cannot remain people, uh, you know, sober or away from the addictions that only the people can themselves. And most often the help is then by speaking with someone who's been in a similar situation, then it becomes this bond, this trust between you. Uh, so in that instance, you know, it's very important for me to come back so I don't fall back into old habits, but it's this ongoing journey to continue to work on the past and clean up what was there. And that is something that, you know, I will keep working on. And this is a daily program in that sense for life. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, let's go into the next stage then, because I, I, to me, I can see perhaps your 12 step program influence what you did next. Um, um, the support, the being able to talk about it, to be able to give it back. You're kind of describing what you did next. Um, so does, did that, how, how did, like what you did next is the EGN, the Executive Peer uh, Support Program, um, and your book, Executive Loneliness. Did the 12-step program give you the, the platform or the thought processes to create what you created next? Yeah, certainly, because, uh, you know, I realized that we shouldn't have to fall that deep as I did, and not everyone 
uh, or lucky, I can say, or blessed like me to pick up a drinking problem or some other addiction. So what do you do then? There's still people suffering from loneliness and isolation in the workplace, still uh, executives with inflated egos. So what to do with all these people? Well, we need to be able to talk about the work-related challenges we have in a safe environment, in a confidential environment. Uh, which is not related to mental health or addiction, but having these healthy conversations. Uh, and that is what we do in these meetings. So it's professional conversations without the competitors around. So you should feel that, you know, you're not threatened and you can share. And it's practicing that muscle of uh, vulnerability by opening up. And, you know, Alan, in most groups you will join, people will stand up and talk about how good they are, what they do and so on. In in our groups, it's very different. You come in and there's two things you share. First, you share a little bit of the expertise you can add to the group so people know what they can contact you for so that you can help them with that. Secondly, you will already present already in the first meeting, what's your number one work-related challenge right now? And we will help to prepare the members for this. So they get one slide only and they stand up there and say, this is the, you know, this is the challenge that keep me awake at night. This is really the, the thing that really makes me worry. Because if you get that out of you, the first time you speak to the group, then everything after that becomes easy. Wow. Um, wow. Uh, and we'll just go into, because I'm, I'm sure like me, there'd be so many other leaders so many people in a work in a workforce situation, or even even in a community situation, a family situation, this can't happen with an extreme amount of trust um, and confidence that it's confidential. Um, so we'll we'll explore that in a minute. But can you, without naming a name, can you give an example of what you just said um, in the time that you've been running this EGN network? Um, what's a really good example of someone getting up on day one saying, this is my number one work challenge. This is what keeps me up up, up at night. Yes, and it's happening the, uh, the whole time, right? I have a, a couple of stories, uh, even from yesterday, we had meetings happening yesterday. And uh, um, uh, one example is of a, a very senior executive working in, 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 the, in the luxury yacht cruise industry, and he, he's in a job and, um, they're working basically the owners and the board are across uh, different time zones. So he's stretched. He has calls at 4 a.m. He has calls at, uh, you know, uh, midnight, 8 p.m. because everyone is working in different time zones. So here he is opening up, you know, saying, what should I do to protect myself? How do I put parameters around myself? I feel that, you know, that I'm getting squashed everywhere. I'm working 20 hours a day. I don't know what to say because I'm worried that if I speak up, you know, I will be, I will be terminated from the company, or I will, uh, I, I will not get the bonuses and so on. So he's terrified of speaking up. And as he opened up about this in the room, is of course, 20 other executives, also with board bosses. Everyone has a boss, or most have a boss. If you're a business owner, many times you have a board anyway, right? You have people you report to. So this is a common problem and I would say it's the number one most common challenge that people are sharing in our meetings how to protect yourselves and put parameters and it's all about communication so that's just one example Alan uh, other times it could be uh, and people who have a dilemma there was one member who had been working 30 years for the same company he had a dream 
inside himself to try working for another company uh, at one stage of his life. And he had been here, been given a job offer from another company. And he was having this huge dilemma inside him. And he had not shared this even with his wife. He had not spoken to anybody about it. But once he had a chance in a meeting to open up about this, he was crying. And just the fact that he shared this, speaking it out and crying about it, you know, and getting then all the group members who known him a little bit uh, from the previous meeting and had that trust, you know, who could ask him some powerful question to make him reflect, you know, uh, asking them questions like, if you are on your deathbed and you're looking back at this, uh, what what would you have done, you know, and just asking him some powerful questions really, really made him reflect on, on this in a different way. And that, that's, again, Alan, is something that is difficult to do in our own head, right? That's beautiful. That's a really beautiful thing you set up. Your book actually, the, the example you gave as number one, the, the executive working across a number of different time zones, um, having to be up at 4am at midnight and infinitum. I think one of the examples you gave in the book was and I'll wait up for the midnight meeting and then I realised I didn't even have to be there. So he's wasted his, his, he's wasted that date with his wife uh, or wasted that appointment with his um, physio for his, for his probably cardiologist or whatever, um, uh, him or her. Um, so it's very, it seems like a very common problem. Could you, given it like what you're just talking about, uh, and, I, and I, I use this analogy, you're talking to anyone that's got an internet connection today. Um, so you must, in your sessions with 20 executives, there must be a good way of dealing, like you talked about boundaries, you talked about communication. What's a great way or suggestions or strategies to look after the welfare of Alan Sickard, the executive, that's bashing himself up, going to meetings for 20 hours a day that he doesn't need to be to. But yeah, how, how do, what's the way out of that that's that's beneficial for both? Yeah, well, rather than, you know, walking around with that pain and complaining to people uh, about it, including your family and so on, it's about being honest. You need to have an honest conversation, but have that honest conversation on a one-by-one -one level and don't group up with others, you know, just ask your direct report and, and have a have a direct conversation about it and try to agree to some common ground. What I, I've seen is that, you know, some people will agree that let's say, for example, okay, because of the time difference, let's only have these calls Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, let's make Monday and Friday, you know, green zones when we don't have these calls. And, and if you have an honest conversation about it and just say that you worry that, you know, it will result in lack of sleep and maybe your performance will go down uh, and, and you don't want that, you, you want to be at your best to deliver. If you look at it from the company side and you're honest, vulnerable and have a conversation about it, most often, at least what I hear is that you'd be surprised how comfortable and how willing the other side is to compromise and come up with something that makes it easier. Beautiful. Again, connections, respect, uh, being honest. I, I love it. Um, let's go to the, to me, the, it's the million dollar question in what you've set up. Um, like knowledge and vulnerability in today's modern world are weapons. Um, like if I, like you said it early on in your, in your, um, how does Nick Johnson get made? I used, uh, I used to step on people. 
So um, executives at, at the level you're talking about, um, without some kind of regulation or trust, will use the information in those meetings to step on their competitor to get to get a better outcome. So how have you created this high-powered support network at executive level where they're sharing their deepest, darkest fears? How is that possible where it's not used as a weapon to hurt them? Well, vulnerability has to start at the top. So if I'm the leader of this organization, I have to be vulnerable first. And that I am with being with you today, Alan, and thanks for that. Uh, of writing my book and sharing openly my story because uh, if I want the leaders and each group have their own leader also to be vulnerable they also need to lead by example when they take care of these groups and only then can we ask the rest to be vulnerable but it's about creating this safe space as well and as I said everyone signing on disclosure agreement we also carefully craft the groups so anyone who's joining the group need to be approved by the current members so there's a uh, there's no competitors in the same group. Uh, for example, if we have KFC, McDonald's and Subway as members of uh, our network here. They go in different groups. So you don't sit right next to a competitor to share your secrets. Uh, but you'd be surprised, Alan, people really respect this. Once you create the framework and over the years we run this now, we have not even had one breach. It's never been one time there's been an issue of something uh, of, of any confidentiality being breached. So is that through, is the ND, the non, NDA, you call it a non-disclosure agreement? Is there a, is there a, a penalty behind that if they breach it, that, that they're not prepared to breach? Because it sounds, um, it almost sounds like utopia. Uh, and I love it. I absolutely love it. And I think um, anyone listening to the show today will, We'll say, I want a part of that. You know, I want a part of that in my country. Or um, So hats off to you for actually creating this beautiful safe zone. But is there a, is there a kind of a, what do they call it, a silk glove uh, or a, uh, <laughs> like a metal mallet uh, if you do breach the NDA? No, it's not. I would say it's more based on, on, on trust and honour more than anything. And... Uh, it, it shouldn't need to be more. I think we live in a world uh, that is more about collaboration than competition. Uh, you know, there's so much disruption. Things are happening so fast that even world, words like agile have almost no meaning anymore because that means that you are reacting. You need to proactively look into the future if you're a company because it's so heavily digitally disrupted and it's happening so fast that, uh, you know, we just need to become closer to each other. We need to talk more about things and we need to partner up uh, even with uh, perhaps our competitors. Uh, and I believe that is uh, also a better way for everyone to live and to lead. I love what you just where you just went. Um, you need to co collaborate with your competitors um, to achieve a better outcome. That wouldn't have just popped into your head. Um, can you give an example where through this beautiful uh, AGN network you've set up, that our competitors have actually worked together to get a better outcome. Yes, and it's actually, despite that we have the rule that we don't want competitors in the same group, it is up to the first member of the group 
to decide if they welcome a competitor into the group or not. So if they if someone wants to join, so in this case, let's say that uh, uh, KFC want to join the same group as McDonald's are sitting in. If McDonald's who have the first seat is comfortable with that, then KFC can join. But it's up to the first person who joined the group to to either uh, welcome or not. Uh, so in that aspect, you know, it is up to the people there. But uh, we can see collaborations happening across companies being founded, uh, you know, new product services being, uh, you know, collaborated and so on. And there's so many mergers and acquisitions also these days that, you know, most likely or very commonly you see that actually the competitor becomes a part of your company, yes, right? Yes. So you got to keep your enemy closer than ever, yeah, right? Yeah. And it's... um. One of the other leaders that I interviewed on the show, and she's probably one of the most um, empowering, inclusive, supportive leader that I've ever come across. Um, she talked. She talked about like you have. She opened up about where did where did Nick Johnson come from. She talked about well, exactly what you just said. Um, you never know who you're gonna who's gonna be your boss. You never know who you're gonna have to work with. So it's important that you treat people the same and with um, collaboration and fairness and empathy in every dealing you have with them. Um, because one day, and you just said it, like the, the acquisitions at an international level are daily, aren't they really? Yeah. So yeah, so it's, um wow, you, you're a really good guy, mate. Um, and what you've created is something, wow, uh, it, it, the, the, the world could listen from. Like you've created a community at an executive level we're empowering people to support each other. Uh, it's pretty pretty bloody special, mate. Um, so let's let's so this may let's it's a good segue in. You wrote a book called um, uh, Executive Loneliness, um, and I've got the got the titles of the. I've got so many notes. It's going to take me a while to go back and get them. Um, five pathways of overcoming isolation, stress, anxiety, depression in the modern business world. We want people to read the book. So I'm going to ask you a question now because uh, I think you've just given us what the book's about, really, about your whole life um, and everything. So I, I'll get you to talk about it in, in a little bit. What did you, you probably, you, if you've done some research, you know this question's coming. Um, what did you learn about yourself writing this wonderful book about executive loneliness? What did you, over to you. Well, First start, uh, Alan, um, once I was in uh, my recovery and I started to feel better, I still kept it quite secret and silent in a bubble in the support group, the 12 step program. My wife knew a few other people knew, but it, that was it. You know, on the outside, I, I, di I didn't act like anything had happened. But then one year into my recovery, something happened that changed everything. A friend and a colleague of mine uh, and a senior executive in Singapore died of suicide. and. That day, I decided to basically go uh, global with my story. I decided to set up a, a raise money and uh, for a suicide prevention agency. I decided to uh, make a video and put it on LinkedIn. It went viral. Within 24 hours, people wrote from to me from all over the world. I was on live radio the next day, and then it was a four pages feature interview in the local newspaper, which still today is the biggest media exposure related to suicide and, and mental health in Singapore. 
Uh, and from there on, you know, I realized that I'm talking about something that no one want to talk about. Even the journalists said we've been wanting to cover these kind of angles and stories, but no one wants to talk about it. And they all want to be anonymous. And we don't want only anonymous stories because then it might as well be science fiction. We need someone coming forward. So thank you for doing that. Uh, so that's what I did uh, uh, at that time, Alan. And that was the start of the book. Once I realized, you know, I had been in 20 newspapers and uh, all local TV and radio stations here, basically within three months, I thought I need to get further with this. So I put all the news clippings, you know, uh, on, on the desk and I started to, to write the next chapter of the book. Wow. And what, so what did you learn about yourself uh, in, in writing the book? Like you've, you've kind of given us how the book happened. What so, did you, uh, um, what did, like, oh, I'm, I'm at the last, I'm probably two months out of the book being printed, my own personal book. So I know uh, this, this, and this interview is not about me. So I know I've interviewed a lot of authors. What did you learn about how you ended up writing a book about executive loneliness about yourself? So, yeah, it's a tricky question, Adam. So thank you for asking that because it makes me reflect deeply. I, I think the number one thing I learned about myself was honesty, because here I wrote a book uh, on a very sensitive topic and the natural human instinct is to cover up and make it look good, right? And I remember from the first start of it, I said to the publisher, I don't want to have myself on the cover. I, I don't need my story in the book. It's about other executives. And I was pushing, I said, we should interview executives, we should survey executives, and I don't want to be the hero. And that was easy for me to say, perhaps I meant it, but also I, 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 I was, of course, scared to share my story in a book. It was one thing I've been on radio, I've been on social media, but to put this in a book that's going to be sold and distributed all over the world, then there's no way back. So as I start to write my own story, you know, it was very difficult to put the full truth out there. And mm. what I had to do, because at this time, you know, my new, my new wife had been by my side when I hit rock bottom and she was the one to help me pull out. So I asked her to read the first chapter over and over and I challenged her, is this the full truth? And she kept saying, no, this happened, this happened. I said, oh gosh, you have to write that as well. <laughs> so, so, so the key learning here about myself was really how hard it is to be honest, brutally honest. Well, that's, um, you're, you're, I really love this interview. And, um, it's cause I, you're, when you look like if to the listeners, I, I'm not, you're only, you'll, you'll hear this on an audio podcast, but Behind Nick Johnson today is his um, is probably his office where he does most of his uh, Zoom or Teams meetings by. So his his white bookcase behind him is full of um, copies of Executive Loneliness, and I think you're only about what are you about one seventy eight centimeters tall? Are you? Is that is that your height? About that, yeah. Yeah. So, but his his picture of himself on the front of this book makes him look about seven foot tall. Um, so uh, it's it's about um, about who you, who you really are, and you love doing. I love uncovering what what really made you you. And I, you, that brutal honesty answer about a, such a sensitive topic is is really really beautiful. So the next question I always ask an author of a book is, um, what do you want the reader 
or maybe the listener in an audio book um, to take away from reading your book, Executive Loneliness? Well, I, I want them to, if they have something on their mind, to write it down and think who they can talk to about that. And what I mean with that is it can be any challenge that they have or any problems, any issue. And, you know, take that to a mentor, a coach, a sponsor or a family member, someone just to voice it out. And uh, uh, there's so many confidential support group. So you can, if you go in the search engine, there's something for every issue, every problem. It doesn't matter if it's alcohol, drugs or gambling or uh, any addiction that people have or challenge. There's so much support out there and a lot now. And thanks to COVID for disrupting this, that you can see a psychologist online, you can do it in, in a confidential setting. Uh, so no one need to know. Uh, and just making that first step by speaking and, uh, to someone and asking for help. That is the key message that I would like to get across. Beautiful, beautiful. I think I'm going to keep that pretty simple. One one question that I thought of, and I, and I didn't want to interrupt you um, right at the start, like Nick Johnson, this high-powered executive that's that's on fire essentially in in the corporate world, and he felt like he couldn't ask anyone for help or talk to anyone. At the same time, was this elite athlete? and had absolute faith that your coach or coaches would you, would get you through you know step 1 to step 12 to become uh, an elite marathon runner or triathlon so you must ask them for help and you must have accepted their um accepted their guidance and support and probably getting getting through your doubts that you're never going to make the time um so this must exist for a lot of people. What what stopped you using the same method in your business world that you showed in your elite fitness world? Because you must have shown vulnerability in your elite fitness world to reach out for help. Can yeah, you think that, of, can, certainly, Alan, and and it's very true. And and you know the 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 fitness coach I had at the time would give me a plan and you follow the plan. And it was not something that was really challenging. You know, I, I, I would come and ask some questions about nutrition and, and some tips. It wasn't something that, you know, I would feel um, so personal about, but I think, you know, in the career, you really feel that that's my profession. I'm being paid for this. And there you have certain expectations to deliver while uh, I was certainly not a professional athlete in, in that regard. Uh, but I, I wouldn't perhaps also follow everything. These days, I still work with a coach and I learned to surrender to, if you go and ask a coach or a doctor or someone who's supposed to be an expert, you know, don't argue with them. It is what it is, just follow it. So for me these days, I just follow the plan. I'm not like seven, eight years ago, I used to argue, should I really do that? Is that, you know, and all those difficult questions. I used to be arguing with everything. Now I just accept what it is. And that was something that I really learned in recovery. But uh, yeah, getting the, the, so in conclusion here, the getting the sports advice, if you are a pro athlete, it might have been uh, uh, different. But for me uh, at the time, you know, I told myself uh, that this is not something I'm getting paid for. So therefore, it was easier to accept. Well, it's a good good answer. Last question then. Um, this podcast is really being listened to by people who might be already leaders um, and struggling 
or they might be people who are just about to embark on a leadership journey and they're saying, oh my God, I want to, I want to be like Nick Johnson Mark II. Um, what would your advice be to them? Be vulnerable and practice being vulnerable and lead all your conversations with friends, family members and colleagues about something where you talk about feelings. And this is a message, especially to us men, we are absolutely hopeless talking about feelings. Uh, it's something that we, we don't do. And we cannot expect others to talk about feelings unless we speak about feelings first. And this is something that I practice with my 14 year old son. Whenever I speak with him, I normally start the call by sharing a little bit how I'm feeling because then it becomes natural for him to listen to that. And then you can also, so how is it going for you? How are you feeling today? And just ask that word, you know, so people well, think and reflect on feelings. Yeah, you've, you've nailed it today, mate. You really, and it's, and it's what I love about someone like a leader like yourself. It's not rubbish. It's not bullshit. It's just in your head and how you do it every day. Uh, and I'm conscious we've been really going for an hour and a half, so I really appreciate your time. But um, there's a story about your son that I, I think I'd love to have you share um, before we end today. Um, I think you just disclosed that he's 14 years old now. He lives on the other side of the world, I think, um, still. Um, what is something you do once a week with him to help you um, connect? And it's something to do with... Um, if I can prompt you, the, the gaming, you know, like you play gaming with him on the other side of the world. Um, yeah, again, again, right? Uh, boys and men, it's not so easy to talk. And I realized that he is was very quiet and silent and not easy to communicate. And also time, you know, I, I felt it was a burden to bother him about the call. So instead, I got a gaming computer and we, we play games online. So I'm coming in doing, you know, uh, um, uh, playing the games he wants, uh, uh, multiplayer, and at least I'm then coming in to his world, you know, and it becomes fun. And then we communicate with the headset then. So he feels that he's in control. It's his space. He feels safe and he can open up and he can speak there. And it's also no eye contact as person. It's uh, We have a webcam and I see it there, but we're walking around as a character and, you know, we're speaking and, and gaming and finding solutions together. So we're becoming partners in that. And that's a really good way to communicate. And, and he's looking forward to these ones. And I realize also to add to this, Alan, that, you know, when I want to talk to him also, because we don't live together so much, we're not super close. So it's easy for me to speak with him if we go for a walk we cycle together or we drive a car because then also you don't have the eye contact uh, and I, that's also something then back to the phone call right if you have a phone call then you expect someone to say something the whole time and it becomes a bit tense and you're thinking what should i say and then it goes cold but when you play the game then it can be quiet for two three minutes you're walking around playing and then you say something and so it becomes more natural and it's the same way you will go for a walk or a car you don't or drive a car you don't have to speak the whole time beautiful and who would have thought um that's what i love about the, <laughs> these interviews who would have thought you would you would get advice on how to be a dad how to be a parent uh from a from a an interview um with a high-powered executive from singapore um and i think that's a great great way to finish if someone wants to access Nick Johnson um, or access your book, how do they do that, Nick? 
you can go to Amazon and look up uh, Executive Loneliness. The book is there, Executive Loneliness by Nick Johnson. Or if they prefer audiobook, it is also on Audible. Uh, and otherwise, I'm on LinkedIn and it's Nick Johnson, N-I-C-K-J-O-N-S-S-O-N. And do you want to plug your website? I mean, that's probably you can get that through LinkedIn, but your website's pretty amazing as well. Do you want to plug that as well? You're too kind, Alan. Yeah, it's nickjohnson.com. Okay. Listen, Nick, um, I've loved today. You're a pretty special human being. Um, and uh, you were really uh, vulnerable and honest with where you went today. And probably, you probably didn't expect to go some of the places you went today, but thank you. Um, I think we'll end it there. Well, ladies and gentlemen, how good was that? I always end an interview with some little summary or some tip that was contained within any of you. This interview today had a really unexpected gem right at the end for, boy, for fathers and boys and how to communicate with each other when our world makes it a little bit difficult to communicate with each other. What Nick does, if you've listened, listened to his story, he has his 14 year old son on the other side of the world in Sweden while he lives in Asia. So once a week they play gaming, um, computer games at a multi multiplayer level um, on the computer. So they play games online and Nick's, theory, Nick's um, theory about this and reason for doing it is he is coming into his son's world and they can speak to each other there using the headsets whilst playing the games that they do online. It's easy to talk to each other because they're not actually having eye-to-eye -eye contact, they're doing something together, doing something side by side, just like going for a walk or driving a car, and having a conversation in that environment. And as Nick says, he's doing that, that conversation in his son's world. And his son wants his father in that world. So thank you, Nick, for that unexpected father-son advice. And hats off to you, Nick, for a really great interview. And we wish you well with what you're doing. Until next time, listeners, thank you for listening.